All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, before I read scripture, we're gonna play a little game. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna read this passage, and uh, to help you follow along, uh, I want you to think in your mind, what is what is Sam gonna preach on today? Because <laughs> this is not an easy passage. So play this little game with yourself and see if uh, if you can guess what this passage is gonna be about, and then uh, as as we go through it. Uh, hopefully that'll keep you a little bit engaged in terms of uh, the message today. We're going to read two chapters of the book of Revelation. We're going to read chapters 10 and 11. And they really are wonderful, glorious chapters, but also very difficult uh, to understand. So hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me a little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. 
And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tent of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there, was, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we are continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, and I've been saying that even though the details are not always easy to interpret, the overall message is actually pretty clear, and the overall message is this, Jesus wins. And I've also said that the theology that we see in the book of Revelation is not different from the rest of the New Testament, and so I guess one might ask why it's important for Christians to be in the book of Revelation. Uh, why does the beginning of Revelation say that we should read this book because it will be a blessing to us. And I do think we need the visions and the images that convey uh, the, the message of the New Testament, perhaps even more so because we live in an age of smartphones. Uh, I just read an article last week that was suggesting that, you know, in an age of distraction, art helps us pay attention. So uh, the writer uses example, you know, with camera phones, you, you take pictures pretty quickly and you don't necessarily contemplate the picture that you're taking. Uh, in fact, you probably take multiple pictures and then uh, you have all these doubles and then you pick the best one out of all of them. But then uh, there are photographers who want to capture something artistic in their, through their photography. And what they do is they pay greater attention to things like the lighting and the composition and, and the angle and the color. And that helps the photographer contemplate the content in the, in the photo in a, a different way. And so even though there isn't that much in terms of uh, new theology in the book of Revelation, I do think that the way that the message is communicated through these visions and images, it really helps us to pay attention to the message in a different way. And certainly it's done that for me. Now, today, uh, you'll notice uh, if you're following along in the series, we, we skipped a few chapters and we're doing that for the sake of time because uh, I wanna try to finish this series by May. But uh, whenever, I, if I ever skip a section, what I'm gonna try to do is I'm gonna try to summarize uh, what came before so that uh, at least you have some idea of what we're skipping over. And if you recall from last week, we looked at the uh, multiple uh, cycles of sevens in the book of Revelation, and we looked at the first one last week. There are seven seals, there are seven trumpets, and there are seven bowls. And uh, the way I interpret these cycles of seven is I say they are referring to the same story, but they're telling that story from a slightly different perspective and with a different emphasis, but they all represent God's plan, his plan of redemption with, of course, an emphasis on his judgment upon the world. And we have been, been saying that his judgment has already been initiated, which is why our experience in this world is filled with so much hardship and struggle. God is not bringing judgment to the world on account of things like war or famine or conflict or suffering or death, but these things are actually an expression of his judgment. So I think these images of judgment are not oriented in the future uh, because there are some people who interpret the book of Revelation that way, 
but uh, they are something that we are currently already living in, in our present reality. But in the midst of some difficult imagery within the opening of the seals, if you remember, there was this uh, encouragement that came in the form of the interlude uh, where God would seal or mark out believers and they would be given protection at the final judgment on account of the blood of the Lamb. And then after the seven seals opened, seven angels emerged with seven trumpets and another angel comes and stands at the altar with a golden censer and offers the prayers of the saints. And these prayers are the prayers of the martyrs who are crying out to God for justice. And then seven angels with seven trumpets, they, they start to blow their trumpets. And here we begin the second cycle of seven. And that's what chapters eight and nine are basically about. It is the blowing of those uh, six of those trumpets. And uh, that's what I'm skipping over uh, today. But uh, those trumpets are echoes of the Exodus narrative, which you actually find all over the book of Revelation. And I mentioned the echo of the Passover last week, but when the trumpets are blown, what emerges are things reminiscent of the plagues in Exodus. The first trumpet has hail and fire. Uh, the second trumpet um, says uh, the thir a third of the sea became blood. Uh, after the fourth trumpet, there's darkness. And after the fifth trumpet, there are locusts. And, you know, just as the people of Israel groaned on account of their enslavement to Egypt and they cried out to God for help, the martyrs are also crying out to God for justice. Just as God answered the groans of his people, he also answers the prayers of the martyrs. And so after the sixth trumpet, the rest of mankind, it says in, at the end of chapter 9, the rest of mankind did not repent after these plagues, just like Pharaoh refused uh, to let God's people go on account of a hardened heart. Now, the, trumpet, the trumpets themselves are also reminiscent of what you might call the conclusion of the Exodus story when Israel conquers Jericho in Joshua 6. And that's when seven priests go before the ark and sound seven trumpets signaling the fall of Jericho. So what does all that mean? It means this, the cycle of trumpets, it tells us at least two things. First, God's judgment will allow for evil and suffering to bring great harm to the earth. And this is a similar message that we got from the first uh, seven seals. And second, in spite of God's judgment, he is giving people time to repent and turn away from idols for a period of time. And that is the period that we are living in now, where God is actually withholding his final judgment so that people might have time to repent and turn to him. But even though God wants all people to repent, what we find out at the end of chapter 9 is that not all will repent and people will continue to worship demons and idols. And they will be hardened in their heart, just like Pharaoh was when he refused to listen to God and let the Israelites go. Just as there was an interlude between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal, there's also an interlude here between the blowing of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And this interlude is conveying a similar message and that God will protect his people in the midst of trial and tribulation. And that's basically, that leads to the passage that we just read today. Uh, and that's where I want to focus our message on today. Now, <clears throat> this is a strange section. And uh, I, I hope, I guess, you have like the bigger picture context of uh, where this passage fits as an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. But it is, it is a very strange uh, passage. And, you know, for me, it required a ton of study. I'm like so tired from like studying this because it was a lot of reading. But uh, it's also going to require a lot of explanation. And this 
because of that, it's, this is not going to be a typical sermon. Uh, I usually don't like to fill the sermon with a, a ton of explanation, but uh, I think this passage probably requires it. So you're going to have to focus a little bit more today than usual, and you're going to have to try to track with me a little more than usual. Now, at the beginning of chapter 10, John sees another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And, you know, some people think that this angel is Jesus and other people say it's uh, some kind of angelic messenger. Uh, personally, I think it's Jesus because uh, all the descriptions and all the allusions are to God. So the rainbow over his head is a description to, of God in Ezekiel 1. And the angel's face being like the sun is reminiscent of the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. And the feet as pillars of fire harks back to when God was with Israel in the wilderness and he appeared as a pillar of fire to protect the Israelites. All of that imagery to me suggests that this mighty angel that we read in the beginning of chapter uh, 10 with scroll in hand is Jesus. But whether it's Jesus or an angelic messenger, it doesn't really change the, the message of this vision. This mighty angel cries out with a loud voice as when a lion roars, then seven thunders had sounded. Now, what does this mean? Again, it seems to largely be a reference to judgment. The seven peals of thunders are probably parallel to the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Now, the angel stands in the sea and the land, and what the angel does is raise his right hand to heaven. And that's something that uh, we still to do today in the courtroom. What is it uh, signifying? It's you, you raise your right hand to make an oath, right? You raise your right hand to swear, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, uh, he is making an oath, and he is swearing that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. In other words, God's plan is going to be fully consummated. Again, part of God's plan includes judgment, but the fullness of that judgment is being restrained for a period of time in order to give people an opportunity to repent and to turn to him. But that time will not last forever. Why? Because the martyrs, they're crying out. They're crying out for justice. And Jesus makes an oath and basically promises he will bring God's plan to completion where justice will be fulfilled. But here is where I want to focus today. You know, this angel has a, a little scroll opened in his hand. And then the voice from heaven speaks to John and tells him, take the scroll that is open uh, in the hand of the angel. So John takes the scroll and then the voice says, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, by the way, <clears throat> um, you know, John is usually more of an observer uh, with these visions, but this is a, a rare time where he actually becomes a participant in a vision. And it seems as though John himself is being commissioned to prophesy the word of God just as the prophets did in the Old Testament. Why? Because this isn't the first time someone actually eats a scroll in the Bible. Um, you know, we've already seen a lot of allusions to the prophet Ezekiel, and this is all another one. You know, when the prophet Ezekiel is commissioned as a prophet, God tells him to speak his words to a rebellious people, and they will know that a prophet has been among them. And then basically God says, whether, whether uh, they listen to you, whether they hear you, whether they refuse to hear you, speak my words anyway without fear. And then after that, uh, he gives Ezekiel a scroll. And there on that scroll were written on it words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. And after Ezekiel gets the scroll, God says, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Right? Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. 
and Ezekiel ate it. And what it says is it was sweet as honey in his mouth. But then later on, the spirit lifts Ezekiel up and he went in bitterness in the heat of his spirit. And so you have that combination of sweetness and bitterness, even in the prophet Ezekiel. John's experience follows Ezekiel's commission as a prophet, and he is told to eat the scroll as a way to be identified with the very message of the scroll. When he eats it, it tastes sweet as honey, just like it did for Ezekiel, but then he experiences bitterness in his stomach, just as Ezekiel also experienced bitterness. Now, what does that say to us? Why is there both sweetness and bitterness? And I think the point is this, that um, the word of God has a double effect. On the one hand, there is a sweetness to the announcement of God's plan of redemption, even in the announcement of judgment, because what it demonstrates is that uh, it demonstrates God's righteous character. Uh, it vindicates those who were suffering as Christian martyrs who were unjustly killed and persecuted. The sweetness of the scroll also implies God's grace in his plan of redemption through the message of the gospel for those who believe. On the other hand, there is bitterness to it. Why? Because it also means God's plan includes suffering and persecution for the church. It also uh, is bitter because not everybody will receive this message and the message will only further harden the hearts of those who refuse to repent. And that is a bitter pill to swallow. Now, I think it's important to recognize that there is a, a bitterness or a bitter aspect to uh, redemption, especially in our day. Um, you know, to me, it feels like uh, the church in the West or maybe the modern church, it feels like, uh, you know, we feel like we can market anything as long as we put this positive spin uh, on a narrative. But the word of God is not always going to make people feel good. For some, it's going to be sweet as honey, but for others, it's going to harden their hearts even further. And that's what a lot of the prophets experienced. Uh, most of what we hear from Isaiah's commissioning in Isaiah 6 is his experience uh, in the presence of a holy God, right? So holy, 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 and then he gets that call and uh, he has sins are atoned for. And that's usually what we remember from Isaiah 6. But you know, if you read what God commissions Isaiah to do in the second half of that chapter, it's, it's really not a fun ministry. Isaiah's preaching wasn't going to bring great revival and save people, but uh, it would make people's hearts dull, right? His preaching would make people's hearts dull. It would make their ears heavy. It would make their eyes blind. Uh, who wants to be part of a ministry like that? But that's what Isaiah was called to. You know, a long time ago, I was at this uh, denominational meeting, and I was sitting uh, with these two pastors. I think it was like during lunchtime, and I was just kind of, you know, overhearing their conversation, and uh, they were friends and they had the kind of friendship where they just kind of make fun of each other and they would bust on each other. And, you know, one guy, uh, I guess, got new glasses. And so this one pastor said to the other pastor, he's like, hey, uh, where'd you get those glasses? And the other pastor was like, why, you like them? He's like, yeah, I love them. They would look great on my grandmother. Ha ha ha. Right. And then the other pastor responded, you know, if I ever have a problem uh, where my church, where we're growing too much and I need some people to leave, I'll make sure to invite you to preach for us. Right. Now, he was uh, he was making a joke. And that was uh, but for Isaiah, that wasn't a joke. That was really the kind of ministry Isaiah was called to. His preaching would harden people's hearts, which tells us that the effect of God's word will be both sweet and bitter. Some of the things in God's word will be sweet, like God's love, grace, and compassion. 
But there are other things about it that will be a bitter pill to swallow, like God's righteous judgment upon sin and idolatry, and the expectation of persecution towards the people of God. Now, this leads us to chapter 11, which uh, I would say is probably the most difficult chapter to interpret in the book of Revelation. For the sake of clarity and focus, let me just focus on two things from the vision, which actually reference the same thing. Uh, I want to focus on the temple and the two witnesses here. Now, John is told to measure the temple, and the act of measuring, which you also see in the prophetic literature, uh, is a way of marking out territory where God would dwell. And just as Israel was protected and secure when the Ark of the Covenant was with them in their wilderness journey, it is the presence of God that will ultimately bring protection to the temple. But this temple is not a reference to the physical temple in Jerusalem. And when Jesus arrives, he, he already redefines what it means to be a temple uh, when he refers to his body as the temple. Then in places like 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says we are in the temple of God. And so uh, the church now is the temple. So early Christians would have had this understanding that the temple is actually a reference to the church. God dwells in the new temple, which is the church. Measuring uh, the church and marking that this is where God would dwell is why there is ultimately security for the church. And yet, that doesn't mean the church will be free from pain and trial. If anything, this passage tells us that we should expect the opposite. The church will go through pain and trial. And the imagery then shifts to from a temple to a city, but still referring to the church. And what it says is the city will be trampled for 42 months. Why 42 months? Well, as with other numbers in Revelation, they're not literal numbers, uh, but they do mean something. Uh, in Daniel 7.25, there is this prophecy of a period of tribulation that would take place. And in that verse, this is what it says. Uh, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now that phrase, time, times, and half a time, um, it basically means this. Time is one year. Times means two years, and half a time means half a year. You add all that up, that's three and a half years. Three and a half years is equal to 42 months. So 42 months is this period of tribulation for the church. This is a period of time where God's people will be attacked by God's enemies. When is that period? Well, uh, we're going to see this more clearly in the next chapter, but it's the period of time after Jesus's death and resurrection and before the return of Christ. In other words, we are living in that time of tribulation where the church will be attacked. All right, is everybody tracking with me? I know that's a lot of explanation. We got a little bit more to go. All right, what about the two witnesses? It says uh, the two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days and... Uh, uh, figuratively, figuratively uh, it's the same period as the 42 months because 42 months is 1,260 days based on a 30-day-per-month calendar. And the reason for the tribulation is because the church is being a faithful prophetic witness to Christ. 
And this is reinforced by other images of the two olive trees and the two lampstands, which are images that are found in Zechariah chapter 4. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details of that passage, but all I want to say here is that all of these images represent the faithful witness of the church. And when the church is being faithful in its witness and testifying to Christ, then the passage says, the beast will rise from the bottomless pit and make war on them and kill them. Now we're going to talk about the beast in a future sermon, but for now I'll just say that it represents one of the ways that Satan attacks the church, which is through outward persecution through a state power. Uh, this was something that the early church experienced under Nero and Domitian. Uh, it's also what the modern church experiences today from uh, like the Chinese government, the Iranian government, the North Korean government, right? While the, the, the two witnesses lie dead on the ground, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. In other words, um, when the church is persecuted, the enemies of God will rejoice for a while over the persecution of the church. The church will appear to be weak. The church will appear to be trampled and defeated. And there will be people who are going to be very happy about that because they will hate the church. They will hate the church because of what verse 10 says. These two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. Why were they uh, a torment to those who dwell on earth? Because they proclaimed the testimony of God on the little scroll, and it was not something that they wanted to hear. Right? Just like in Isaiah's ministry, um, just like the, the aspect of the bitterness of this scroll. But that's not the end of the story. There is a resurrection of sorts in verse 11, and God will breathe new life into the persecuted church, and the church will eventually become vindicated. God will call them to come. Jesus will return at the blast of the seventh trumpet, and the kingdom of God will reign forever and ever. And again, this goes back to the main message of Revelation. So if you feel like you're getting lost in a lot of these details, just go back to the main point of the book of Revelation. Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins. After that, all of heaven will worship God and will sing. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged. But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And this is ultimately the song of victory uh, at the coming of Jesus Christ in the final judgment. All right? So, uh, I hope you, you followed all that. That was a lot of uh, explanation. That was a lot of detail. Um, it kind of felt like actually giving a backstory of an inside joke so that everybody can be in on the inside joke. Uh, but let me, let me just conclude by making a few re reflections and then uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, first, you know, the age that we live in is, is going to be a mixture of sweetness and bitterness. So on the one hand, you know, God is, uh, you know, Reformed theologians call this common grace, but God is withholding his judgment because this is a period of time where people are being given an opportunity to repent. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, God's heart and desire is that all people would repent and turn to him, would turn away from these idols, would turn away from, right, at the end of chapter 9, says worshiping demons and worshiping idols and turn to God. 
his desire is for everybody's salvation. This is a period of time where that's supposed to happen, where people will experience the sweetness of the gospel. But then on the other hand, um, this time will not last forever. And there will be a time where uh, this opportunity that God is giving for people to repent will be over because Jesus will return in the final judgment. And uh, maybe this is a New Yorky thing, but because like in New York, you walk the streets and you see so many uh, street preachers like preaching the final judgment. And uh, many of us probably like dismiss them and saying, oh, that's, that's crazy. That's no way to, to make somebody a Christian. And, um, you know, perhaps so. But uh, at the same time, that is the message of Revelation. That is the message of this passage, that a final judgment is going to come and everybody will be judged. And this is the time where people need to repent and turn to the Lord. And some will refuse to repent and it will not be good for them on that final day of judgment. And we should really be sober about that and have a sober-mindedness about that. Second, even when the church is being faithful, um, people will still hate the church. And that's something that we should expect. Now, churches in the West in particular, um, like I said, I think we seem to think we can maybe spin the message of the Bible better or market it better and make it more inspirational and maybe make it more palatable for people to accept in a secular age. But, you know, Revelation teaches us that uh, that isn't going to be the case. There will be times where the church will be trampled and weakened on account of its faithful um, witness. There will be times where Christians will be unjustly killed on account of their witness. Uh, that's to be expected in this age of tribulation where Satan is attacking the church because, and we'll again see this more next week, but Satan is angry. He's furious after the death and resurrection of Jesus because he has experienced the blow. He knows he is going to lose. And so he is on the attack uh, with all of his might because he knows his days are numbered. Third, no matter uh, how beat down and trampled the church appears to be, she will never ultimately be defeated. Why? Because God will make her victorious. You know, uh, again, in the West, we have experienced a season where Christianity has largely thrived. And so our experience is not really persecution from the state. Uh, the experience of other believers in other countries, that is their experience. But for uh, believers in the West, that hasn't been our experience. That may change in the future, but at least up until now, that hasn't been our experience. But believers in other countries, of course, have experienced the state cracking down on Christians through active persecution. And for them, you know, just imagine uh, living in, that, in a country where uh, you know, churches are being destroyed, where the government is surveilling you, um, where you're being thrown in prison, right? Church, imagine like pastors and elders and deacons. Uh, being thrown in jail on account of their faith and what happens to the respective local churches at that point. That would be a really disconcerting thing to experience. And that's what many churches in the world experience. And you could be discouraged and you can say, oh man, the church is being severely weakened because of this persecution. What this passage says, that may be the case for a period of time, but God will ultimately vindicate the church and the church will rise up and be victorious on account of the Lamb. Uh, nothing can destroy the church because God is with the church. No persecution can destroy the church, no matter how intense, because God is with the church. And of course, history bears that out because 
in the early church, there was a ton of persecution. And this is when, you know, the church was pretty small. And what happened? The gospel went to all nations and all people. And what we see today, we see it's a testimony that God is with the church, that the church will never lose. Now, so we should never lose heart, right? Whether persecution or right, pandemic <laughs> or famine or war, God is with the church. The church will never die. The testimony of the church will never die because Jesus wins. He wins. The blood of the slain lamb is victorious over Satan. And God has marked his people to be under his security and his protection for all of eternity. So on the surface, we look at the church and there's tons of problems in the church. But spiritually, uh, God has our back. And because of that, there's great hope, great hope for the victory of the church that we'll share with the slain lamb. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for this, you know, I guess this uh, weird passage, uh, at least from our perspective, uh, because uh, I'm sure a lot of elements of it seem so unfamiliar. But uh, there really is a beautiful message uh, communicated to us through this vision. And, uh, you know, I know the original recipients were those who were uh, experiencing active persecution. And uh, this must have been such an encouraging um, uh encouraging book to to hear to read uh this must have been uh really encouraging visions to to see um and there's this cosmic battle that's taking place and um i guess the thing that we struggle with is sometimes we just see with our physical eyes and we don't recognize um the things that are taking place spiritually that there is a spiritual battle and satan is really waging war uh, against the church and satan really wants to um bring down the work of the church and hinder the work of the church. Uh, but if anything, you, know, you remind us once again that um, you're victorious. You're the one who's powerful. You're the, the pillar of fire. You're the one who is sovereign and seated on the throne. You're the one who's in control. You're the one who is mighty. And because of the slain lamb in Jesus, um, there is great, great victory. And so thank you for that victory. And we pray, God, that you would help your church not to lose hearts ever um, on account of Satan's attacks um, because you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.